I'm Kirk Harnack. On This Week in Radio Tech, it's Tom Ray, Chris Tarr, and Chris Tobin. We're talking ground zero broadcasting when the president shows up, crowdsourced news, troubleshooting expectations, and translator invasion. Here we go. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Radio Tech, Episode 81, recorded May 4th, 2011, from Toilets to Transmitters. This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or television instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Omnia Audio and the new Omnia 11. Big market radio engineers are calling it effortlessly loud. The Omnia 11. Check it out on the web at omniaaudio.com. It's time for This Week in Radio Tech. Hello there, I'm Kirk Harnack, your host, and really glad that you're with us. This is the show where we talk about, well, if you're a fan, you know what we talk about. We talk about radio stuff, and that's everything from audio to RF and uh, antennas and towers and, and uh, sometimes even the things that engineers are tasked to do that they really shouldn't be tasked to. We're going to make that the topic of a show one time. I've got some great co-hosts that have been with uh, us from the very beginning. Let's introduce them to you now. They are way more qualified than I will ever be to talk about engineering. Let's first of all go to the heart of the Hudson Valley and Tom Ray. Hey, Tom. Hey, Kirk, uh, the guy who does it from toilets to transmitters. That's what, that would be me, speaking of things that we get tasked to do. Uh, I'm a VP of engineering at Buckley Broadcasting, WOR Radio in New York City. And uh, hey, I'm here and ready to go. You must be important because you work at a station that has only three call letters, and that's pretty rare. Well, well, you see, we're in New York City, and somebody stole one. <laughs> you said that before, I think, and I walked right back into it. <laughs> also with us from New York City, the best-dressed uh, engineer in radio, it's uh, Chris Tobin. Hey, Chris. Hello, Kirk. Hello, Tom. I'm uh, the broadcast technologist here at CBS Radio in New York City. We have got six stations, three AMs and three FMs, and uh, like Tom, I don't have uh, three call letters, and we have no thieves tonight, but uh, we are on the lookout. And tomorrow's a big day at Ground Zero, so it's busy. I understand. We're going to chat about that in just a few minutes. I want to hear about the, the preps for that. And also with us from McWanago, Wisconsin, it's Chris Tarr, the uh, engineer. Hey, buddy. Hello there. I am uh, the director of engineering for Intercom's radio stations in Madison and Milwaukee. I'm also a contributor to Radio Guide magazine. I host the website uh, broadcastengineering.info. Uh, boy, you name it, I've probably done it. I've got a cast of characters for co-hosts here. And we're going to talk about some very interesting engineering topics here. We'll kind of be all over the map today. So if you, if you don't like it, just wait five minutes. We'll talk about something that you do like after that. Kind of like the weather in Oklahoma. If you don't like it, just wait five minutes. Uh, hey, our show is brought to you by a couple of great sponsors uh, today. It's Netflix. Yes, you can get all kinds of uh, streaming movies and uh, DVD deliveries. In fact, I've got one right here. It came in the mail. We're going to open this up later on in the show, see what it was. I have no idea. You really want to get that live? Could be a Care Bears movie for my kid. I don't know. <laughs> also brought to you, uh, the show's brought to you by uh, Omnia, Omnia Audio, also my employer. Uh, home, they're homed in the Now catalog. We'll talk more about that a little bit later on. All right, let's talk. We had a talk, topical thing coming up. It is going on. We're recording the show on Wednesday, uh, May the 4th, uh, 2011. And tomorrow, Thursday, May the 5th, President Barack Obama is going to be appearing in New York City at Ground Zero. And I think there's probably going to be some radio and TV coverage of that event, as there usually is wherever the president goes. Well, this is an interesting opportunity. WOR Studios are where, Tom? We are about a block and a half to the south of Ground Zero. Uh, you look out the uh, window in the uh, production area, and there's Ground Zero. We actually don't see much of the hole anymore because there's a 50... The building is now up to the, uh, about 52 or 55 stories. Um, but that's where we are. It's going to be a royal pain in the rear end to get into the office tomorrow. And uh, it's going to be a pain just to get around the area until he's, uh, he, until he's out of there. And uh, Chris Tobin, uh, a, uh, I'm, I'm Chris Tobin's partner in crime for things like this. Because if uh, Chris needs window space, he comes down and uh, knocks on my door. 
Yes, I do. And uh, actually, we won't be using a window space tomorrow because it turns out that the press coverage is going to be in a different location. So your window vantage point for our radio mics or wireless mics will not work. So we're going to be using uh, 4G modems with uh, the Comrex access, and uh, we'll see how that goes in a festive, uh, crazy, not festive, but I should say a, a crazy environment of uh, wireless activity at Ground Zero. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting you say that because we're, we're going to do that with our news director, too. We've got a uh, 4G modem and the access, and uh, we're going to send them down and see what happens. Yeah, yeah it's been working well in a couple other locations, so I don't see why not. So it should be fun. Thursday, uh, May 4th, would be a great day to exercise your spectrum analyzer. Actually, May 5th. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yes, May 5th. See what, what's coming out of the pit, you know? <laughs> it's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be wall to wall RF down there. It's a you know what's amazing about this whole concept of of radio of RF technology, and I've I've always been amazed by it. Never have yet fully wrapped my brain around the logic of it all. Is how we can have so many radio signals in the air at the same time on different frequencies that our human bodies cannot detect, and yet we can build equipment that picks up just one, separates them. Uh, you know, it, it ignores all the others to a great extent, not not entirely, but to a great extent, ignores all the others and only tunes in the, the signal of interest. And it can do this, whether it's an analog signal or some some, uh, some uh, RF that's been modulated in, in some kind of a digital format. There's different different kinds of those where the, the information is carried uh, digitally. It's just amazing what our tech can do to allow so many things to operate in the same space all at once. I just think it's amazing. But, you know, Kirk, what's, e what's even more amazing is down in uh, the city there with the amount of press that will be there. Y yes, there's a lot of coordinated frequencies in use, but there's a lot of stuff that will just come out that will be kind of, it's wild card stuff. It just comes out uh, and nobody seems to step on each other. I, I mean, and if you do, everybody's, for the most part, a gentleman about it. Um, it, it, it it's always amazed me that, that we could do stuff like that and get away with uh, all the frequencies in use and nobody's in a fist fight over it. Nobody's stomping on somebody else. Nobody wipes anybody else off the air. It's great. I got to believe that that happens sometimes, though. And that's why we have like NFL game day coordinators, uh, mem usually members of the uh, of the SBE who volunteer their time to uh, coordinate uh, RF frequencies at, at NFL games. Oh, yo, yes, that? That yeah. definitely. Uh, uh, matter of fact, I've been invited. I haven't partaken, but I may this year to uh, become, you know, to be part of the team for a couple of games uh, that does that. But, the, you know, they, they do that so there are no problems, um, not only in the stadium. And, and, you know, we have Giants and Jets Stadium over um, in New Jersey. It happens to be in what I consider to be RF Alley because you've got WOR over there. You've got 1010 wins. Uh, you've got WLIB, WJWR, the auxiliary facility for w, uh, EPN right now. Uh, they have moved their site, but uh, the auxiliary facility may be coming down soon. You've also got, uh, oh, gosh, there's 1330. There's 1280 over there. Um, and we all have STLs, we all have RPUs, we all have something going on. So it's not only for the people in the stadium, it's also for the people outside the stadium to make sure none of us, you know, get blown off of our STL frequencies. And conversely, to make sure we're not interfering with anybody else in there. And more importantly, it's to make sure you don't interfere with the quarterback's helmets. Because mm. they're all, they're all uh, they have radio receivers in the helmets. You know, I've heard that there's also a uh, coordination that goes on for things like when when a TV show like Wheel of Fortune goes on the road uh, and they they they're doing their show from, you know, some college arena or some uh, some some not a stadium, but, you know, a, a big auditorium, some kind of concert hall. They go on the road. They have to have uh, uh, people there to coordinate the frequencies of, let's say, the, the wireless microphones and make sure that there's no interference coming in from the outside world, uh, even even uh, something that is uh, on purpose, you know, malicious. Uh, they have to have, do everything they can to make sure that that broadcast, that recording of that broadcast goes off without a hitch for all the audio. Isn't that kind of a, a danger of, of using wireless as you, you can get stepped on? You know, if you have a wire, it's kind of hard to, you know, uh, interfere with that maliciously unless you cut the wire. That's oh, yeah. People well, well it, it, it was around Christmas time. We did a uh, big uh, big remote broadcast with Channel 4 television here in New York City for the Salvation Army uh, over at 30 Rock. You know, Channel 4 is house, and, and we coordinated with them. We went to them. We gave them our frequencies. They gave us theirs. We were pretty sure that everything was cool, and we were great. We went out. We tested. We were there a couple days in a row, and we tested 
all hours of the day and night. And uh, come the day of the show, one of our wireless mics just got totally creamed because they had a problem over in Radio City Music Hall and turned something else on, and they didn't bother asking anybody using this frequency. They just turned it on. And uh, all of a sudden, we got the Rockettes or something coming through the receiver, and it was like, okay, can't use that mic. Not a problem. Chris, in an in a admittedly smaller market like you have there in, uh, um, in, in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, or in, uh, in Madison, do you have uh, similar fears or problems about people stepping on, on your, your frequencies that you're using for broadcasts? Uh, not too much. Uh, you know, we only have a couple of events a year. Uh, we have Summerfest. Uh, we have the Milwaukee Mile, which is NASCAR race. Uh, a couple other events, you know, probably two or three events a year where we really need frequency coordination. Uh, but again, you know, all the broadcasters are very cooperative in our market. And, you know, I, I know oftentimes, uh, you know, we have people coming into town and I, you know, we won't be using our RPU frequencies. So you know, I'll put them in the pool for, uh, for, for available frequencies and stuff. So it's a lot easier in a smaller market where you're not having all these huge events with, you know, all the media coming into town. But we do have yeah, two or three opportunities to really you know, give our frequency coordination plans a workout. Okay, so there is actually some coordination, and you try to get the people who are coming in the town to coordinate those things with you, so you don't step on on each other. Um, speaking of, you know, I was talking about a little while ago about the magic of of, of RF and 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 how all that works, and how we can sort that out in in, in terms of transmitters and and receivers, even crowding into a single space. There's another topic that's that's kind of magical, and that's this world of PPM, the personal people meter, from uh, the, the folks at Arbitron developed uh, or are putting out this technology uh, in biggest markets first and then going smaller and smaller markets. It's, it's here in Nashville, for example, uh, market number 40-something, 40 44 or so in the U.S. Um, I understand, uh, according to a story in Radio World, that the FCC has officially ended their inquiry into PPM. There was some, um, some uh, kerfuffle about uh, whether PPM accurately measures uh, some formats. Uh, and, for example, the National Association of Black-Owned Broadcasters, the Spanish Radio Association, Minority Media and Telecom Council, American Hispanic Advertising Association, and some others like Border Media Partners, Entrevision, uh, they, um, uh, they were all part of a coalition that's been critical of the methodology of PPM. Um, hey, uh, in New York, Tom, uh, Chris, uh, can you uh, can you comment on this kerfuffle and uh, how it got resolved? Uh, I'm not quite sure how it got resolved, but I can. Uh, uh oh, oh, there we go. Uh, I can tell you. Uh, I I've got actually two questions and then uh, one quick comment. Uh, the first question is what business what business is it of the FCC's to regulate PPM? Uh, number two. Uh, my feeling is PPM is going to be a lot more accurate from the very simple standpoint. You're not relying on somebody to write down on a piece of paper what station they were listening to. Um, and in the case of when they turn PPM on in New York, WOR's ratings stayed the same. So, uh, you know, I, I would say it's pretty a a accurate. But I, I base my statement on, on that from when I first started in broadcasting many years ago. Uh, the market I worked in, we had a day timer. Um, that, uh, you know, when winter comes, the daytime station in December was off the air at 4.45, 4.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. Yet they came in, somehow came in number one in the ratings, 7 to midnight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so, so tell me how accurate that is. Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the deal with, with that and with, uh, you know, some of the problems that the, uh, the, the minority stations are talking about is for many years, including daytimers, Arbitron would weight those numbers. So, for example, if you're a daytimer, they would take your daytime numbers and then when you're off the air, average those out and almost give you a 24-hour number based on an average of your daytime numbers. So, uh, you know, AM daytimers, I remember a station I worked at where they actually could have gone and turned on a night signal, but realized that it would just tank the ratings during the day because of the way that it's weighted. So you've got that. But they did the same thing with minority formatted stations, is a lot of times the diary entries would be weighted in their favor because of the way that the distribution system worked. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I think part of the kerfluffle was that that weighting went away. And, you know, that, that did affect, well, it didn't affect a lot of the big stations that remained, you know, fairly close with the numbers. It did affect those stations that were previously weighted. 
Well, I should explain the tech we're talking about here. I'm sure there's some people listening or watching that that PPM. I've kind of heard of that, or I haven't heard of that. What is that exactly? PPM, personal people meter technology, is this really interesting tech where radio stations uh, get these encoders that encode. Um, um, what, what's the best way to say it? Um, um, well, they're inaudible, inaudible because of audio masking. That they encode uh, signals that you can't hear. It's kind of like call, they call them. They're, they call their technology watermarking. Watermarking, that's the word, that's the word, okay. So the normal human can't hear these tones or sounds because they're masked uh, to the human ear by the regular audio that is being transmitted. Uh, this is actually a pretty well-known effect, and it's used greatly with psychoacoustic encoding like MPEG-2, MPEG-3, AAC, uh, those kind of things. So those technologies use uh, the same effect to code fewer bits. Well, in this case, uh, Arbitron's PPM encoders are putting watermarking sounds uh, just under the level of perceptibility, and they survive very well through audio processing, through somewhat poor reception. And so a um, uh, Arbitron then sends out to listeners, to some group of people who, who normally would have received a survey, right, to, to write in, they get a little device that looks like a pager. And they wear this device, and so this device listens all the time to whatever the human who's carrying it is listening to. And if the human is carrying it, is listening to the radio, well, this personal people meter uh, is listening for, specifically for, those watermarking sounds. And then it can detect and it records, uh, it doesn't record the audio, but it records uh, what that person was exposed to. Now, of course, it can't tell if the listening is active or, or passive. If you walk into a 7-Eleven store and they're playing a radio station, well, your per personal people meter is going to uh, note that you were exposed to that radio station. And they've encoded uh, all kinds of different uh, signals, you know, TV audio and radio audio and cable TV, and I'm not sure what else, but as many things, uh, you know, if you want to be counted, and the whole reason to do this is so that your radio station, your broadcast facility, shows up in the ratings and that means a lot more money to you if you show up well in the ratings in a big market uh, than if you don't show up well in the ratings. In fact, a, a single rating point can cost you tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in advertising well, you know, here's, revenue. The thing about the watermark, it's amazing how robust the signal is. I know in, in testing, uh, they do a pretty pretty thorough QA test before they go live in a market. And in one situation, I actually played... Uh, the PPM signal coming off of my AM radio into a phone, and they were able to decode it for three solid minutes uh, to pass the QA test, which is actually much more stringent than the, than the meters would require. So even just holding a phone up to an AM radio, uh, the, the PPM equipment can decode on the other end what station that it's listening to. That is, that's really amazing. Um, at um, the, um, well, I'll see. I think we're under NDA. Won't say anything about that. Um, there is a, a, an effect that some broadcasters have been worried about, and that is that the watermark cannot exist in the transmitted audio if there's no audio. So if you have a radio station that's, for example, playing Marcel Marceau's greatest hits, or, <laughs> or uh, if you have a news talk station, where you don't have much background noise. You just have a single announcer, a single voice on the ear with, what? if you're playing Paul Harvey, then you're going to have short periods of time where there's no watermarking. And that has been of concern to broadcasters who have that kind of programming, that have uh, long spaces of no audio, because there will be no watermarking during those spaces. Also, if the audio that is present is not within a certain frequency range, that's where the watermarking takes place. There's, there's a lot of considerations that went into the development of the Arbitron PPM system. Um, uh, there, there's got to be audio to mask the watermarking tones, and it's got to be within a range of roughly 1 kilohertz to 3 kilohertz. Uh, below 1 kilohertz, some of the processing time to recognize those tones would become too long or too difficult for a small device to do. So there, that's just one of the many considerations that went into how PPM was uh, was developed and how it does work. Um, uh, Chris, is Chris Tobin back online with us or not? I'm here. I'm here. Okay. So but you've got a number of stations that are doing PPM there in, in, in New York. Uh, what what comments have, do you have about its, its robustness or about this, uh, this controversy? Well, I agree with Tom. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone, and Tom, we're not alone. There's no need for regulation of PPM by any government agency of any type. It just, it just doesn't need to be. Uh, as far as robustness, 
Yeah, it's very robust. Um, we've tested it on, under many conditions, and the telephone test is one of the popular ones that Arbitron likes to use. We have it on, uh, let's see, six stations. Each station has an HD channel, HD 2 and 3. We have uh, three, four web streams each. Yeah, I got, a, I got like three racks loaded of uh, PPM encoders, gray boxes, and we've got decoders uh, set up or monitor decoders to make sure that we're encoding. So that sends out emails, phone calls, and a few lights go off, beta bright signs flash in the various studios when PPM encoding stops. Uh, but uh, it works. It's real time. It, it, it's a game changer. And if you understand how it functions as far as a programmer is concerned, a programming person, you can game the system, believe it or not, in your favor. If you don't, really? you'll... Oh, yes. Huh. I won't get into the specifics, but I... Oh, man, I want to hear a specific. What, what was a tactic you can do to increase your PPM uh, uh, rating? Well, just, just understand how the PPM functions, how the, the, uh, the algorithm is used to... Uh, decode, not decode, but um, uh, base listenership. And then you'll understand exactly what you need to do with how many breaks you take, when you take the break, how long the break should be. Uh, and if you listen to some stations that have been smart about it, you'll notice a serious change in the way they program. You know, they've, they've broken a lot of the traditional methods. And uh, at a couple of the programming seminars at the RTNDA, talked to a couple of program directors, and it's very interesting. The ones who get it and how they've been able to maintain their numbers, their the ratings. As Tom pointed out, his station, the talk format, they didn't see much of a change going downward. They maintained or may have increased their numbers. That's a great sign because that means they've already got their formatics in place that complement PPM. But I know a lot of talk stations that, uh, let's just say, were lazy. And when that PPM came online and after the first series of, uh, of uh, reports, uh, they had a scramble. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. It's real time now. It's no longer the memory recall, which is, it's, you know, it was fun. That was, e that was easy to game that system. <laughs> Write it down and tell a friend. Hey, we're going to take a break here and uh, hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back into the meat and potatoes of the program, Tom Ray had a very interesting visitor at uh, his radio station at WOR. And we're going to be uh, checking into that. So, Burke, you be ready, buddy. Right now, I want to tell you about the folks at Omnia. That's the folks who make the, uh, the world-famous Omnia 6 processor, of which there are thousands of on the air around the world. Uh, by the way, this is the new catalog from Telos, Omnia, and Axia. And these are just hot off the press. If you went to NAB, then you could have gotten one of these uh, at no charge from our booth. This is a gorgeous, like, coffee table sort of, uh, of book. In, in fact, look who's here inside the now catalog. It's Leo Laporte with a picture of the very studio that we're talking through right now and the uh, Axia audio console there. But I'm here to tell you about Omnia. Um, there's a big section here about Omnia, including the new Omnia 11 processor, the cool Omnia 9 processor with a feature list just as, as long as your arm. There's uh, Inside this catalog is also uh, some articles, too. There's a lot of learning going on here. For example, Denny Sanders, who is a very famous, world-famous program director and this jockey can find uh, videos of him from the 70s on YouTube. Uh, he's got a good article here about how to talk to your program director about Omnia 11, you know, or about audio processing in general. Um, you, can, uh, you can almost get one of these catalogs uh, right now. You can go to the Omnia Audio website at omniaudio.com, and you can actually download a PDF of this whole catalog. Very soon, we'll have a sign-up sheet on the omniaudio.com website, and you can request your own uh, paper copy of it. Uh, it's just its a gorgeous, like I said, kind of like a, uh, a uh, coffee table book. Good thing to, to, to keep uh, in your office. Um, in fact, if you go to the website, omniaudio.com, Dot com. You can find out about a lot of the processors, all the processors that, that Omnia makes. Did you know that Omnia has audio processing for web streaming? So if you uh, do a web stream, this is a great way for you to get fantastic audio processing that processes your audio properly for a coded audio environment. Uh, there's, a, uh, for example, a software package called Omnia AXE, and this runs in Windows uh, as a service, so it's pretty reliable. It's as reliable as the Windows machine is, and uh, that's what, for example, I'm using on my radio stations for our audio processing and encoding. It's got, uh, it also includes encoding, so you can do MP3, AAC, lots of different flavors of AAC, including uh, HEAAC V2. Something that that, uh, that uh, Greg Oganowski, a 
previous guest of ours talked about as being the codec to use, especially if you're streaming to mobile devices. Are you an AM station? Well, Omnia has AM processors as well. There's the AM version of the Omnia One processor. It is powerful. Don't let the price of like, what is it, $3,295, don't let that fool you. It is a very powerful AM processor. Uh, so there's the Omnia One. There's a whole series of Omnia Ones for AM, FM, uh, for internet streaming, the multicast, uh, and there's also a studio version. Um, there's also um, the, uh, uh, the Omnia uh, 5 for AM processing. A number of, of big city stations, including several in New York, are using the Omnia 5 uh, EX for AM processing. There's a range of FM processors as well, the Omnia 1, the Omnia 6, the soon-to-come Omnia 9, okay, maybe much later this summer, and the Omnia 11, which is shipping now. If you're doing digital audio broadcasting, there's the Omnia 1 multicast, and if you're doing audio mastering, there's the Omnia 6 CD, perfect for mastering CDs uh, or other, you know, high-fidelity things that you want to be compatible with uh, broadcast processing. So, Check it out, omniaaudio.com. Very glad to have Omnia Audio as a sponsor of the show. And uh, you can go download this whole catalog. And I'll tell you, as soon as we get the form on, on the website, you'll be able to uh, have one of these catalogs sent to you at no charge. Check it out. Thanks, Omnia Audio. All right, Tom Ray, you uh, had a special guest in your studio today, right? Uh, actually, it was yesterday, and uh, I'll I'll tell Burke when to bring the picture up. I'll preface this by saying, I I've been doing this a long time, so I don't get starstruck. I mean, I've uh, exercised on the lobby floor in at WR with Richard Simmons. Uh, I've worked with Joan Rivers. I've run the board for Cousin Brucey, and if and if you're not from New York, Cousin Brucey was one of the big jocks on WABC in the heyday of Top 40 Radio. I have told Reggie Jackson where to put his ego when he came in to record a radio commercial in Hartford one day and just kind of plunked his rear end down in the chair, looked at the copy, kind of read it, dropped it, and walked out of the room. It was like, dude, no. Um, I've, I, 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 I've chatted with Donald Trump. I knew Howard Stern before he was the king of all media because he worked in Hartford. <laughs> so I don't get I, I, I just don't get starstruck. But we had a guest come in yesterday, and it was funny because our program director, Scott Lakefield, same thing. He doesn't get starstruck. He poked his head in my office. He went, did you hear Betty White's coming in today? I said, yeah, I heard Betty White's coming in today. He said, think we can get a picture? I don't know. Let's go talk to the producer. And we just kind of <laughs> down to the st studio, and we're sitting there like little kids. Um, <laughs> so, so go ahead, uh, Burke. You can bring it up. That's Scott on the left. That's me on the right and Betty in the middle. And what... <laughs> What a lovely lady she is. She, she's, she's a true pro. She's a true legend. Um, they don't make them like her anymore. And, and, and it was very funny to watch her being interviewed by Joan Hamburg because Joan would, make a, would, would compliment her and give her a, make a comment about something she do, did and give her a compliment. And she would blush and sit there and go, oh, Joan, thanks. You don't have to say that. And, she, and I think she honestly meant it and couldn't figure out what the fuss was about her. They, they don't make pros like that anymore. They really don't. But, but what's really cool, what's really, really cool, of course, I know who she is. I, I've, I know her as uh, Roseanne Niv uh, I'm sorry, Sue Ann Nivens from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Oh, yeah. Uh, my kids know her as Rose Nyland from Golden Girls and from her uh, appearance on Saturday Night Live last uh, year. Uh, my mother and father enjoyed them. My grandmother enjoyed Betty White. Uh, so, I, I mean, I got to meet a living legend and someone who I've just idolized for many, many years, and it was a, it was a thrill. It really is. It's one of, the, one of the perks of working at a station like WOR. You get all kinds of people who come in the door, uh, and she, she, was just a, she was just a doll. She really, really was. That is cool. That's a good story. That, that is neat being behind the scenes at big stations, even smaller stations. I, you know, I got to meet Billy Idol one time, but that's no comparison to Betty White. How cool well, I, I also noticed that uh, Burke says, and she is funny. Uh, she is a riot. She's an absolute riot. And it was funny because Joan asked her about the Saturday Night Live appearance. Yeah. And she says, you know, she says, first of all, she says, I was asked many, many years ago, and I turned it down. And she says, you know, it, 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 it's for a younger generation. She says, it's my kind of comedy, but it's a younger generation. Who'd want Betty White there? And when this whole thing started on Facebook, she says, my... Uh, my manager came to me and said, you know, you got to do this. And I looked at him and said, I don't got to do this. And he said, no, no, you got to do this. And she said, let me tell you, I had 
a blast. And, and you know, if you go back and watch the video of her uh, when she did that show, you could tell she was having the time of her life. <laughs> That's a good story. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. The picture, too. I appreciate that. A whole bunch. Hey, um, other celebrities in the news. Well, uh, Osama bin Laden was in the news this week. And a lot of folks heard about the uh, killing, the assassination, taking out of Osama bin Laden first uh, through social media sites, through their Twitter feed, or maybe on uh, on a news site. I think I first uh, noticed somebody saying something in a in, in a Twitter feed. I was working uh, here in the office late that night, and so then I I, I was right in front of the computer, so I went and checked uh, uh, news.google.com, and you know, sure enough, there's a news story. And then and then. I turn the TV on. I don't have a radio handy. It's actually in the next room feeding a server. So um, that was the order for me. Twitter, web, TV. Now, I stuck with the TV. That's, that's where I, you know, heard all the, the gossip there. And so Chris Tarr and I were talking about this earlier today uh, about, um, well, Chris, didn't you call this crowdsourcing the news? Yeah, it really was. You know, if you look at how how it all went down, uh, you know, I heard about it first, like most people on Twitter, and then of course the the president delayed his uh, his presser, his his speech, or whatever you want to call it, for almost an hour and a half after it was first announced. In that time, there is this huge information vacuum going on, and it's one of the things you and I were talking about this morning. Was some of the stuff was right, some of it was completely wrong. If you if you completely believed what was going on uh, based on the uh, you know the, the the social media, you would have figured that Osama bin Laden was killed by a missile a week ago, and they used his brain tissue for a DNA match with his sister. Uh, you know, that was kind of the big uh, you know round of information that was going on for quite a while. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, it really got me to thinking about crowdsourcing with the news. I mean, this was really uh, this first time that I can recall really. Uh, other than uh, we were talking about the the uh, the stuff going on in Iran, but here here in America, where uh, you know news anchors were sitting there with their laptops open, following Twitter and Facebook to see what was going on, because there was such a, a vacuum of information, and they had all this time to fill, and everybody you know was coming out of the woodwork talking about it on Twitter, and I found it really fascinating, and I started to think of of you know what can we do as engineers to kind of harness that power for. Our, our staff for for delivery, um, and I you know I, I think uh, you know Chris Tobin. This is probably right up his alley with with uh, with winds. Uh, some of the things going on down at Ground Zero, people with with uh, you know recording audio and taking pictures and recording video. Uh, you know, all of a sudden we have a million reporters out in the field. It's very interesting. Mr. Tobin, uh, do you guys at CBS have any way to? Are you incorporating ways to take uh, information from the crowd? The listeners from from Twitter or maybe some direct messages and and use those as uh, supply lines into your news departments. We yeah we we do have access to all the social media channels. We don't put them into the supply line until we verify the facts. Uh, uh -huh. One of the problems we're experiencing in our business of journalism at Ten Ten Wins and CBS Eight Eighty is the credibility, as pointed out with what Chris was saying and yourself. You know you can have. You know, 500,000 people witnessing something because they're all in, in say, Times Square or, uh, you know, somewhere in the Red Square. But the problem is, how do you verify what it is that they're sending out unless you have a journalist, credited journalist on site to do the reporting? And that's where you get tr into trouble. So Sunday night, so Monday morning, when the announcements were coming out about uh, bin Laden and the situation taking place in Pakistan, yeah, we saw a lot of chatter. I'll use the phrase, uh, a lot of social media chatter. And most of it was, from what we could tell, was inaccurate. So we had to rely on our credible sources. So, uh, yeah, we, we keep an eye on it. We look at it. We, but we have to verify. Because if you can't verify and you report somebody is, say, dead and they're not, that's it. You're done. You might as well just pack up your bags and go. Well, here's, here's something I'd like to see somebody develop. Uh, I'm certainly not a software developer, so I couldn't do it. But uh, for those of you in the chat room, if, you, you know, if you're so inclined, you can steal my idea. But you know, I was thinking about ways to, to kind of vet information. If you look on your Twitter feed or on your Facebook feed, there's a whole lot of noise there, as you were talking about. And I was thinking, you know, one of the ways you could at least 
improve that is, for example, you could assign, uh, you know, points to how much you trust or not trust that particular person with that kind of information. And you could build filters that way. And, uh, you know, when things like this happen, uh, you know, the, the news from the more trustworthy sources are what show up on top and, and right in front of you. And uh, I think in some cases, uh, that would have been very helpful, you know, the other night when this was happening. But I, I think in the future, we're going to see more and more of that with, uh, you know, radio media, uh, you know, because we're all, you know, the, especially, you know, radio has, be, has been very good about tying into social networking. And I think we're going to start trying to devise ways to use, you know, even more so than we have been to use that to our advantage. But, you know, just to be able to separate some of the noise would have been a, a really good tool to have. And, you know, that's really the only thing I think of is, you know, there are some people that I trust that, you know, to deliver me more accurate information to the others and to be able to say, okay, if this guy says something, I want to see that first. And, you know, if it's something, you know, with this person that's down under the noise floor. You know, th there's some, some talk in the chat room and, and, Certainly people bring this up uh, 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 frequently. When, whenever we have a story like this or occasion where now people who are on the scene with their cell phones or they're on their computers and, and, they, and they tweet something, like the guy who was live tweeting uh, the, uh, the invasion of, uh, of bin Laden's uh, compound, mansion, and, and didn't realize that he was doing that. Um, uh, we're going to have this debate about people saying, ah, you know, look, I trust Twitter uh, more than I do the, the, the news services, more than the, the major networks. And uh, I, I think, you know, we all recognize that um, no matter if it's an individual tweeting or whether it's a major news network, a, an anchor or a reporter, there, there's the possibility of uh, bias. There's a possibility of misinformation or of not really understanding what was going on. You know, force people see a, a, an auto accident. You're going to get four different stories about what happened. Um, it, it, it seems to me that if, if you're a person that wants to read uh, uh, your, your, your Twitter feed, uh, you subscribe to people who might be in the know about things going on, like the uh, earthquake and tsunami uh, in, in Japan, uh, like the, the nuclear uh, plant problems that they had there, like the, uh, the, the elections that were so uh, disputed in Iran, uh, and the, the, just all this, anywhere there's strife, anywhere there's a news story going on, people are going to tweet about that. How much of what people tweet is really accurate? I'll bet some of it is very accurate, and some of it could be wholly inaccurate, and the same person could end up being guilty of both, tweeting things that are accurate and things that are opinion, uh, or maybe he or she didn't actually see what was going on, heard about it, but tweeted it as, as if it was fact. And then you have... Then you have the, the, the news anchors and reporters for major networks or even local TV stations. They've got, I think, a slightly diff, uh, additional responsibility. They have, they're talking to a bunch of people all at once. Well, okay, you can argue that you know, some people on Twitter are too. Uh, but we, there's a tradition of at, at, at least confirming sources and confirming a story before you go to air with it. Not always possible, not always done. Um, so, Chris, you, to, uh, Chris Tarr, you bring this idea of a trust factor for different uh, people who are tweeting. I, I, that's, that, of course, that seems like a cool idea. How do you implement that for somebody who has never tweeted before, but they're on the scene of something that's newsworthy, that's just happened? Um, how, do you, how, well, how do you work I, through that? You know, well, that's the thing is it's it's it you know it can learn over time. It's funny I'm having a conversation with uh, Tom Baker in the in the chat room here back and forth about that, and you know almost uh, as he was mentioning, kind of a Reddit or dig for social media, and you know it can be several people. It can be you know yourself. You know I'm not sure if it's somebody new how you you'd rate that rate that how you rank it, um, you know. And, and again, it's just a concept, but I think that you know those are problems that are fa fairly easily solved. But I, I just, again, the, the, just the massive amounts of information I was seeing uh, through Twitter. And, and, you know, some of these people, uh, you know, some of these news organizations were kind of just firing these Twitter, uh, talking about these Twitter entries as they were happening on the air. And I think in terms of, of even that, if you know, we, give, we have a tool like that for people who, you know, are, are kind of probably shouldn't be, but are using Twitter live, uh, that maybe helped too. But just the sheer amount of data that I had to kind of mentally go, okay, this source I would trust, this source I'm sure is just getting bad information, uh, you know, and even a, 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 you know, ranking system by many people. Maybe, you know, if I trust you, Kirk, and, and you rated this guy high, it would show up high on my list because I trust you. I, you know, there's, a, there's many different ways you could do it, but I think it's going to be inevitable because there's just so much information out there and the noise can get so loud as these events unfold that it's going to be real, going to get to be real hard to sort it all out. 
want to uh, ask Chris Tobin the next question, but I want to point out uh, our friend in the chat room, Eric Adler, is just usually full of great ideas and 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 good comments. And he 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 points out that uh, uh, Eric says I trust Twitter more than one spe any one specific news service, mind you. Twitter for me, this is Eric speaking, uh, includes the people I follow, not just everybody, not you know asterisks, not a wild card. It's people that he he knows and he follows. And I, you know, I guess I what I follow, uh, uh, I have no idea, maybe. 30, 40, 50 people on, 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 on Twitter is more than that. And you kind of get to know uh, who's going to tweet something that you that you trust, want to hear about, that, that agrees with what you generally know to be true in the world. Uh, and then those who, yeah, that's, that's a bunch of crap again. I'm going to quit following that person. Um, I, I got to believe that as we move into more and more and more social media and, and uh, more people have technology to make their, their sights and sounds and visions known, uh, what they're seeing, what they're experiencing, that n news organizations have got to adapt and change with that. Now, uh, Chris, you, you said that, you, of course, you got your reporters uh, and your newsrooms have access to all of these things. I got to believe that in the future, we're going to be developing tools like um, somebody mentioned. I may have been Eric, actually, this uh, USGS uh, earthquake detection detection uh, using Twitter yeah, um, uh, <laughs> as, as a uh, what primary or secondary source anyway, a, a proxy for for earthquake uh, uh, d d detection. Chris, do you think we're going to come up with tools like that for for newsrooms? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I, I believe we probably have them in place already in a uh, non-software mode, but in human interaction on part of the social networking. But yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, we have Twitter reporters. reporters. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, Twitter has tools already based on keywords where you can automatically be uh, informed if somebody mentions something anywhere through Twitter uh, that has a keyword. So, you know, you can do something similar to that now. For example, uh, my wife and I were married in Galena, Illinois, and we went uh, we went to Galena uh, on our 10th anniversary a couple of years ago. And I tweeted that we were in Galena celebrating our 10th anniversary and immediately got a tweet back from their Chamber of Commerce congratulating us and welcoming us to, uh, to town. So, you know, I, I, some of those tools exist already in, in terms of, I think what he's talking about with earthquake detection in terms of, you know, is there something in that noise that's important, um, you know, some of those tools already exist. Got you, got you. Um, I think we were going to move on to uh, to another to another topic uh, shortly. I want to uh, tell you tell you about our um, our uh, other sponsor on uh, this week in Radio Tech, and that is Netflix. All right, guys, this is a group ad, so stand by with either your picks or comments. <laughs> I think we, we, you know, we're preaching to the choir here. Every co-host on this show is already a, a Netflix subscriber, right? Yep. Uh, yes. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, well, I want to tell you, this episode of This Week in Radio Tech is brought to you in part by Netflix. Now, they deliver movies directly to your home. If you haven't heard of Netflix or you're not using it, wh wh where have you been, really? Uh, this saves you time and money and hassle. It's even easier than stopping by the, the red box. You know what I mean? You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies. I do it all the time. Had the little kid here in the office watching another episode of Caillou the other day, and uh, he just loves it. These uh, movies are streamed directly to your PC or your Mac or streamed to your TV uh, with a Netflix-ready device. Uh, hey, in the master bedroom here at the uh, Harnack House, uh, we have a, a Roku box to uh, watch Netflix and to watch uh, episodes of, of, of uh, Twitch shows as, as well. Um, in the... Um, uh, in the entertainment room, we've got an Apple TV. Shows you Netflix just like that. And here in my office, I've got a Samsung TV that has um, the application, the Netflix app, built right into it. So just run an Ethernet connection to it, and bam, we're watching uh, Netflix right here in, in the office. Plus, you can get DVDs by mail in about one business day. In fact, we're going to have a little unveiling here. This is my Netflix. Came in the mail today. <laughs> we're over the <laughs> Are you, sure you wanna, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you yeah. want to do this on camera, Kirk? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Most embarrassing thing it could be is a kid's movie. Let's see yeah, here. Right. Okay. We're, oh, we're going to open it up here. Let's see what it is. Nancy does not tell. Oh. There we go. Ah. <laughs> it is The Aviator. Nice. From 2004 with, uh, didn't it have Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie? Yeah. He plays Howard Hughes. So there you go. Tell you what, the I've Aviator. been... I've been uh, I'll, 
I've been doing the Doctor Who on Netflix. Getting, I, I, I believe it or not, up until a few weeks ago, had never seen the show, and I am now hooked. And I watch it. I've got Netflix on my iPad as well as on my TV downstairs and on my computer. So I'll be sitting there, you know, taking a break at lunch, whipping out my iPad, watching Doctor Who. I am just, just hooked, and I stream just, uh, I stream it all the time on Netflix. It's great. Well, uh, we got to a Netflix uh, streaming pick of the week. Oh, by the way, you, of course, you can uh, watch as many movies as you want anytime you want with the streaming service. Uh, certainly, there are some movies that are not streaming that you need to get by DVD, like The Aviator. I couldn't get that one by streaming, so they're not all streaming. Uh, but we want to have a Netflix streaming pick of the week. And by popular demand, that uh, pick is Haunted Honeymoon. Now, I've got the information right up in oh, front yeah. of me here. Does anybody else have it handy? No. With uh, Dom DeLuise, Gilda, Gilda Radner, yeah. and uh, Gene Wilder, and Dom DeLuise, where's the dress? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was directed by Gene Wilder. It's a comedy, uh, spoofs and satire movie, and also rated as a screwball movie. It's goofy and scary. It has uh, typically, uh, well, I guess this is, maybe this is a rating for me. It's got three and a smidge stars um for me the, oh, the average rating from uh viewers 3.4 stars out of five so it probably will not be the highlight of your annual movie watching experiences but uh hey it's, it's, there's some broadcast in this uh, uh uh chris tar won't you tell me that this happens in a radio station is part of it oh was it me i didn't see it tom oh. ray tom ray <laughs> tom, tom ray was, i yeah. did oh yeah yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it actually takes part. What it is, it's an it's an old radio show from the 1940s, and they go in, uh, and, and and it's it's a it's a show about uh, about these two people who go on a, on their honeymoon, and end up in this haunted castle. And, but what happens is after they start acting out in front of the microphone, they take on the characters, and the movie changes, and you're in the castle, and you're on the trip, and the whole bit, and um, the the, uh, the the killer is when Dom DeLuise in a dress, uh, comes out and there's a storm and he goes, listen, and the storm has, and I'm not going to ruin it for anybody because <laughs> he, com he comes out with a word that today we say it on the air without thinking about it, but back in the 40s, oh my God, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even consider saying it on the air. And all of a sudden, bang, you're back in the radio studio. Well, and Haunted Honeymoon is, the, uh, is our, our host, our co-host pick of the week. You could instantly watch this movie or choose from thousands of TV episodes or other movies when you register for a free trial membership. If you haven't signed up yet and you are listening or watching this podcast, shame on you. Go to netflix.com slash twit. You can uh, start your free trial right there at netflix.com slash twit. Thank Netflix for their support of This Week in Radio Tech. All right, as promised, uh, Chris Tobin. Um, I'm sorry, it's gone right out of my head we were going to talk about something engineering wise or was it uh psychotic oh the expe expectations or do you want to talk about no ground zero we already talked about yeah we talked about that yeah it was expectations I sent, you one on right. translator. I sent you a note on translators yeah we're gonna we're gonna uh, wrap up with with that story too it was expectations and um in fact this kind of relates to to troubleshooting and repair but it, it it has to do with so many things in in life and that is our expectation of what is wrong or what we're going to experience before we actually get there. Now, it's natural that, you know, we as thinking engineers, uh, if we hear of a problem, uh, something's reported to us, we tune in our radio station and we, we hear something wrong, we immediately, our brain starts to fly into the mode where we try to figure out what's wrong. Where would that problem be coming from? Uh, let's see, the station sounds great, but there's no stereo pilot. Or, hmm, there's no left channel on every other song. Where, where could this problem be coming from? Uh, you, you know, I mean, the, the, these are fairly obvious, but I mean, so a, a problem like that, for example, if there's no left channel on every other song, that couldn't be after the stereo generator. Not going to be there. You know, there's nothing wrong with the exciter if it's being fed uh, AES or, uh, or composite. It's going to be before the stereo generator process or before a digital embedding process. So that can, that's the kind of thing we think about. And uh, I, I just wanted to chat for a minute about how our expectations of what a problem is can lead us seriously astray. How we might think, oh, I know what that is, I'm going to go fix it. And we get there and we go, we follow this path to fix what we think is wrong and we're, we're, we're uh, befuddled by, well, this isn't fixing it. This isn't it after all. And we have to kind of back up and look at the big picture again and say, okay, now what, what else could really be causing this? What, what brought this to mind today was uh, kind, of a, a, a silly, kind of a silly thing that happened to me today. I was, call, I was, in, I was in the car. And I was making a phone call to uh, Chris Tobin. And uh, I uh, was holding the cell phone and I, I punched dial. And I was fully expecting 
to hear the the ringing. Um, I guess I was expecting it to come out of the, the my, my speakers uh, in the car because of the, usually my phone is connected to the Bluetooth in the car. And I had totally forgotten that I had put these on my head. So when the ringing occurred, it came from, it sounded like the center of my brain where the ringing was occurring because these are stereo telephone uh, earphones. And my brain just, just went in lockdown for a second. Huh? What's going on? I'm hearing a ringing tone like from the middle of my head. And it actually took a couple seconds to realize, oh, I'm wearing headphones and they're stereo headphones. And that's why I'm hearing that from the middle of my head. Now, how does that relate to our expectations when we run to a transmitter site or go to a studio? Um, any of you ever experienced this being led astray by this? I Tobin, I'll talk to you first because I think you said you had some similar experiences. Oh yeah, yeah. Nope. yeah I've, uh, let me see. We re we recently uh, we had a problem in a transmitter room recently, and one of the guys ran up, ran into the room, immediately looked at the transmitter, and said, "Oh, there's the problem," and was looking at the wrong transmitter, and realized after he went pressing buttons, he had now two transmitters running into a antenna system. Oh. And it was just because he, well, because you 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 run in and left to right, you always think left is number one. The right will be number two or backup, whatever you want to call it. And it just so happened that we had switched to the backup as part of routine maintenance. And whoops, first thing the you know, person thinks of is the main transmitter is the one on the left. And it, you know, that wasn't the case. And that was that's one of the that's one of the times you, your brain is just like you just I guess you cache a memory and then you just run into a scene under pressure, you just quickly recall that image and you you, re you access it and you're just like, whoop, let me do it, and then realize after the fact. So if like so, your headsets with the telephone. On, on the one hand, uh, making a mistake like that um, could just cause you a few extra moments of, of time or result in uh, two transmitters being on the air at the same time in the two different antennas, if, if that's your setup. But making a mistake like that can also cost you your life if it has to do with leaving, yes. the, leaving a, a breaker on to a transmitter or some device. You think the power's off, and it's not. And that is a, not an uncommon way that engineers and other people who work on equipment perish or are, are, are electrocuted. Uh, uh, Chris Tarr, do you have some kind of similar experience to, you know, either warn us or teach us about how your expectations need to be? You know, it's good to have some focus, but it's also good to be prepared in an instant to, to back up and look at the bigger picture. Well, I did mention this uh, on another episode where I did that with a power supply where, you know, I just assumed it was off it because of the routine I was in and started working on it. I had my hand between the, uh, the poles on it on the transformer and the whole time it was live. Uh, I think what happens a lot of times in these situations, especially in emergency situations, and I try to teach this to, to, to my guys, is when you're driving in and, and you know there's a problem, your mind starts to process what it could be. And you start to think that's what it should be. And you know you have the solution almost in your head by the time you get there and you just start to act on that without really looking closely at everything because in your mind you've already figured out what the problem is and how you're going to deal with it and you kind of get thrown through a loop when that's not the situation so you know, a lot of times what i have to do is and i tell others to do is you know count first of all count to 10 and just realize you don't know until you get there you know you don't start running through the worst case scenarios and and you know running through this and that you know think about what you might be running into but you know, don't don't you know, don't already decide what the problem is before you really have, as I like to call it, you don't have all the facts and evidence yet. So, you know, don't make any assumptions based on facts that aren't in evidence. Wait till you get there, and then you know, from there, process what you see. That's that's one reason why it's so strange to go to a transmitter site that's off the air, and you drive up, and the tower's gone. <laughs> Because that's not that's not what you're really expecting. You're expecting to find a breaker thrown or the power's off or something like this. But you get there and the tower's on the ground. So that or the I've, building's I've on fire. Yeah, or the building's on fire. Exactly. Tom, I, I've had that. I've had the building on fire. Oh, oh no. Oh jeez. Tom, what do you got for us along those lines? Uh, well, no, no, I agree with Chris. I, I mean, you don't want to get a preconceived notion. And yes, your mind does start processing. Oh, it could be this. It could be this. It could be this. Um, and especially like a WOR, we've got a fairly complex antenna system, and we've had a couple of antenna problems. And, and I've caught myself, you know, when I was much younger, I, I, I would very easily chase my tail for an hour. And I've caught myself driving up to the transmitter site going, oh, it could be this, could be this, could be this, could be that. 
And uh, one one thing that I uh, that I found once, uh, we took a lightning strike, and but but it didn't really destroy anything. And I pulled up, and I and I, yeah, I, I had been talking to the station on the way down to the transmitter site, and station was on the air, it was functioning fine. The common point was right where it belonged. Yet the tower two and tower three readings were all over the place. And uh, when I showed up at the site, that's exactly what I found. And I and I I went out to all three tuning houses. Didn't see anything out of out of the ordinary, but yet I smelled something in tuning house two, and it followed me. We have metal cabinets, and we ha we actually have the tuning unit. We've got uh, detuning, we've got filtering, and then we've got a cabinet that's the output cabinet that's right before the tower, and that's where the smell was coming from. And I, I Kirk, I must have said stood there for a good fifteen minutes looking at this thing, going, "What could it be?" Because there's a coil in there. But the coil wasn't arc. It had an arc over, and it wasn't overheated, so that's not what I was smelling. And there are two vacuum capacitors, and vacuum capacitors don't smell. I mean, they either they'll they'll either short, or they'll just blow to smithereens with a lightning strike. So, so it didn't make any sense. Now I'm looking, and all of a sudden I realized there's a set of ball gaps, you know, for lightning protection in that box. And I'm looking at one of the one side is on is on a brass standoff that goes to ground, so that's the ground side, and the other side is on this porcelain standoff, and I'm looking at the porcelain saying, you know, it doesn't quite look the right color, and I, and I took my pen out of my pocket, and I, uh, you know, poked the insulator, when I poked the insulator, it shattered, Oh, and I picked up the phone, and I called the station and said, oh, the ratings, they said, oh, great, I said, thank you very much, um, I, looks like what happened was when light, there, there must have been an imperfection in that porcelain insulator. And when lightning hit, it went through the insulator but didn't destroy it. It created a carbon trace, which created a resistor. Because I picked up one of the pieces of that, uh, that piece of porcelain. Let me tell you, that sucker was hot. There was a, there was a good couple of kilowatts going through that thing. Uh, uh, sure. But, 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 of course, that upset the impedance in the tower, which upset everything else in the system. Uh, but but I, 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 I must have been out there a good hour in, in, in that particular tuning house because you know, I went to all three towers and I'm standing there going, the hell is this? It smells, but there's nothing in here to smell. What, what I was smelling was on top of the uh, porcelain insulator was a nylon washer. The nylon washer had melted. Oh, okay. All right. Ne never would have suspected that. I, I mean, I suspected if we took a lightning strike, I'd find something in smithereens. What does nylon washer burning or heated up smell like? Smells like overheated plastic. You, you know, oh. if, you, if you ever took if you ever took something like this screwdriver and and put a uh, so, laid a soldering iron on the plastic uh, handle, yeah. that's exactly yeah. what it smelled like. Smells like plastic. Tastes like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got one more topic to hit before uh, before we end the show. Uh, Chris Tarr had um, brought up the subject of translator invasion. Chris, what does that mean? Well, uh, you know, recently the uh, FCC uh, changed regulation for translators allowing uh, AMs, as long as they're within their daytime contour, to uh, rebroadcast their programming on FM translators. Same rule goes for uh, rebroadcasting HD uh, subchannels. So all of a sudden, there's been a run on these translators. Now, the rules for AMs specify that uh, the, the translators have to already be built and that sort of thing. So there's a little bit more to that. But in a nutshell, that's that's the deal. And what we're finding now is almost kind of this gold rush with translators where the stations are, uh, you know, picking up these translators and walking them in, you know, from, from other parts of, of the area and, and walking them into the big city. Now, what's interesting about this is that in order for these translators to move, they have to do it in what are called uh, with minor modifications. And the FCC defines modern uh, minor modification uh, of a translator of moving within its contour uh, and only moving up or down by three channels on FM. So what's going on is, you know, these, these companies are buying translator stations, uh, which translators, by the way, are uh, small up to 250 watt FM translate uh, uh, transmitters that essentially receive a signal and rebroadcast it. 
and uh, they're not protected and they you know there's a there's a whole lot of rules that but it's essentially it's a, it's a small power fm station that rebroadcasts another uh but back to the moving thing they they go you know 40 miles away by a translator and try to move it into the big city well the fcc says to make these minor modifications you have to file and then there's a 40 at least a 45 day processing period and then you can make the change so what people are doing they're buying the translator. They get the they get the paperwork done. The FCC approves it. Then you file this minor modification to move it the first step closer. So you move it the first step close. You know you wait 45 days. FCC approves it. You move it. You build it. You file the changes with the FCC, and then immediately file another change to move it again. And you've got another 45 days to move. So you're seeing this almost slow march of these translators, and you can see it coming. Uh, you know, starting almost a year ago, of moving towards these these larger cities, and all of a sudden, there's kind of this this spectrum grab of trying to to shoehorn these small translators uh, into into major markets. And I just found it kind of fascinating because you see it all over the place. Uh, you know, uh, where where these stations are moving in, and you're also seeing a few speculators who really have no interest in put in running these things, but they're the ones who hold them and are moving them into the big city in hopes of turning around and selling them for a big profit to somebody who's interested. Now, up until a couple of years ago, with the before the AM ruling and the HD2 programming, these translators weren't real uh, sought after. You know, you'd usually hear religious programming on them, non nonprofit programming on them that would relay satellite stations, things like that. But uh, as soon as the rule changed, all of a sudden these translators became very valuable and people are using them as almost a, a second radio station or, you know, an additional radio station in the market. So it's just interesting to see that move coming in. That, that is interesting. And, and you're, you're speaking about this like um, it's a bad thing. And I, I guess it's a rule that, that can, can be abused. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm not saying I'm not necessarily speaking of it as a bad thing. Uh, it can be, uh, you know, if it's done right, it's it's really not too harmful. It's just interesting how, um, you know, the FCC treats these uh, translators because, uh, you know, first of all, a real interesting role with these translators is if anybody complains that you're interfering with a licensed service, even even if, for example, uh, it lands on a frequency, let's say you like a, a radio station on 98.1, but they, you use a big antenna and they come in from 200 miles away. If I were to put this translator on 98.1 and you can't hear your station anymore, uh, I could complain to the FCC and have the translator shut down, even if this wow. radio station wasn't on the air, you know, it was on the air 200 miles away. Um, but what I find interesting is just, first of all, the FCC, what, you know, I guess what, what I, I'm kind of... Uh, I, I got leaves me scratching my head is the FCC's ruling where they're making you wait 45 days. I mean, it, it's all just this whole paperwork mess. And you're watching these translators slowly march up, you know, closer and closer and closer in these, you know, 45, 50, 60 day increments. And you just kind of wonder, you know, at, at what point does the FCC say, okay, here's where you're starting, here's where you're finishing, file the paperwork and make your one move. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous how, you know, this is working. Gotcha, gotcha. Do you do you? Um, um, I it, I think that the stations that I own in Mississippi uh, did exactly did the same thing. We had a translator in um, the sprawling metropolis of Clarksdale, Mississippi, and we wanted we really wanted to move it to the other sprawling metropolis of Cleveland, Mississippi, and so it took I want to say it took five steps to move it, and we did. And and yet the the paperwork was kind of kind of ridiculous. Look, I mean. Couldn't we just move it to, right. to Cleveland? <laughs> Why did we have to move it a little bit to where the signals overlapped, theoretically, and then move it again right. to where the signals would again theoretically overlap? Uh, is it true that, that people have moved a translator across a large body of water where they couldn't possibly have built a, a tower to put the antenna? I have not heard of that. It wouldn't surprise me, you know, with some sort of waiver or something like that, that that, that would happen. Um, you know, I, I'm involved in a situation now where we are doing that. We're moving across body of water, but the contour is just barely touched. So, uh, you know, that does that does work. Uh, but it really is. It's one of those where it's, you know, all the things together with the, you know, with the, the, the people buying the translators to, you know, to essentially flip them and the FCC slowing down the paperwork. And it's kind of like watching snails race because, you know, in my particular situation, I can see 
literally four or five <laughs> translators trying to move into Milwaukee. And, you know, one of the broadcasters involved bought like two or three licenses just to see which one he could get in first. <laughs> you know, and he'll probably sell the other two. Uh, you know, it is. It's just like it's watching a snail race. It's just very fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, I'm all for it as long as, you know, everybody plays by the rules. There's, you know, that's what they're for. But um, it's just a real interesting dynamic because for so many years, these translators were just throwaways. You know, some stations in rural areas would have translators just to get into you know, markets that were, you know, underserved or, you know, like, like what you were doing. Um, but all of a sudden now, you know, these, these almost worthless translator licenses have become the new broadcast gold rush. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I guess it's the only thing left uh, since so many of the full power, uh, the full power channels are, are all taken up and like, except for some, you know, very rural areas uh, across the country. And then those are going at, at auction sometimes for a, a whole lot more money than a, a person could afford to pay back. Hey, guys, we are uh, out of time. I know we could go on talking, but we're going to have to put off anything else for the next episode of This Week in Radio Tech. I want to real quick thank our two sponsors, Netflix and Omnia Audio. Uh, check out Netflix.com slash twit. And at Omnia Audio at OmniaAudio.com on the web. Uh, thanks to my co-host, first of all, from the Hudson Valley of New York, Tom Ray. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate you being here. Thanks, Kirk. It's been a blast as always. See you next week. And Chris Tobin from his glorious office in Manhattan from CBS Radio. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> I thought you were Mr. Technical. <laughs> nice oh, you're welcome, Kirk. Welcome. Oh, yeah, there was that subject. Oh, we got to talk about that next time. We're out of time this time. Keep your phone around. <laughs> that one's got a dial on it. Is anybody really going to use that one with a dial? Oh, jeez. And uh, Chris Tarr from Muckwanago, Wisconsin. Thanks for being with us. Oh, a story Once about again, that. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we got a lot more stories to go. Appreciate the guys in the chat room, guys, and maybe any women. I don't know. They go by some secretive names sometimes. So appreciate you guys being with us as well. We're going to go. We're going to catch you next week on This Week in Radio Tech. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>